This morning, we're going to continue in the book of Acts, and we pick it back up in chapter 21. But as before we get there, um, ladies, your Bible study books, Pleasing God, are over here, so make sure that you see Jan afterwards. Um, and you'd want to grab those for this weekend, or excuse me, this week. And then um, the pizza sign-up sheet, make sure that you do that so we have enough pizza for everyone. That's going around. And if you forget or you, you realize it tomorrow, just please still come. Um, it's going to be a good time together. But Acts chapter 21, it's an interesting time as we continue uh, looking at the life of Paul in the early church. And the title of the sermon this morning, and I hate titles because I'm not creative, but it's easy when you can just pull it straight from the text, is simply, um, none of these things move me. And this morning we're going to look at Paul and what brought him to this point in his life. What brought him to this time in his life where he's going to Jerusalem and yet none of these things, none of the threats that were ahead of him would move him. And then we're going to ask ourselves, how too do we come to that place? How not to be moved in life? Many of us probably know someone, uh, maybe for better or for worse, that have Maybe we can even call them or we, we refer to them as, it can be stubborn at times, right? It's hard to move that person. They have an opinion, uh, where to go out to eat, what they want to go um, and do on their day off, and they just can't be deterred. Sometimes they, uh, they'll hear what you say and they don't necessarily reply, off, reply back or address it, but they just keep on going. Or, or sometimes after they keep being pushed, they'll finally say, you know what? We're just going to do it. Sorry. Right? They, they will not be moved. They have it settled in their heart. It's just funny to see who, who is laughing as we give that example. You just see what families maybe have someone that's more stubborn than others. But how was Paul? How did he come to this place where he would not be moved? Um, what we're going to look at, a quick outline of verses 1 through 14. In verses 1 through 6, we see the first round of dissuasion that Paul faces not to go to Jerusalem. And then in verses 7 through um, 12, we see the second round of dissuasion that Paul faces not to go to Jerusalem. And then finally, we see the knockout punch that Paul gives, where he finally says, guys, this is enough. I will not be moved. And so this leads us to ask ourselves two questions, and we're going to answer these two questions this morning. What was settled in Paul's heart that prevented him from being deterred? That's the first question. There was something so settled in his heart. What is it? And then second, we must ask ourselves then, if that was a reality for Paul, how do we come to this same reality in our own lives and in our own hearts? So a background, again, we went through chapter 20 last week, and we saw at the end of chapter 20 that Paul arrives um, at the small town of Miletus. And remember, it was at Miletus. As, again, he's kind of finishing his journey in uh, what is called Asia at that time, and, and that would kind of be you know, more eastern um, of, of Europe, and you can see the maps behind us. And so Paul goes to Miletus and he calls the elders from Ephesus, the church of Ephesus, Ephesus being a larger city. And he come, they, those elders, they come down. And in verses 17, down through the end of the chapter, we see that Paul exhorts the, the elders. Again, Paul knowing that he probably won't see them again. And it's from this point on in the book of Acts that we see Paul as the prisoner of the Lord. 
He considers himself God's prisoner, given himself over to the Lord, bound to do the will of the Lord. He knows, um, well, I guess we know, that Paul had this desire to go to Rome and that he would go through many trials, arriving at Rome eventually as a prisoner. And so in chapter 21, as Kelly read for us, we pick up um, in verse 1, now Paul is leaving Miletus and he's continuing this journey. And we're just looking at the journey, just the travel today from Miletus all the way to Jerusalem. And we'll pick it up again there next week. But in verses 1 through 6, we saw this first round of dissuasion that Paul faced. His I travel itinerary, if you look there, he goes from Miletus to Cos, to Rhodes, to Patara, to Phoenicia, and then finally, he stops in Tyre. And again, leaving this area of Asia and, and, and traveling down. And if you look at the map there, Tyre is, is kind of between Jerusalem and Damascus. So Jerusalem being a little bit further south and inland. Uh, Damascus being up towards a little bit north of Jerusalem. But Tyre was kind of up in that upper area. But it was along the sea coast, along the Mediterranean Sea. So again, they, he's kind of left that Asia area, kind of come back down into the area of Israel not quite to Jerusalem yet. And there we see in verses 1 through 6 that Paul, um, he meets other followers of Jesus, other disciples as we're told, and he spends a week with them. So seven days, they're hanging out. He comes to their house. What was that like as Paul just entered in? He's, he's on this third missionary journey, and he's finally back to uh, kind of leaving the time ministering to the Gentiles. And he just is refreshed as he can go and spend some time with other followers of Jesus. I wonder what that conversation was like. Was Paul just sharing all that he, the Lord had done back through the Gentiles and again in Asia? And then he's talking to them, no doubt. He's sharing and, and just in that normalcy of conversation, right? They're asking, okay, well, Paul, where are you going? What, what's next? You've been with the Gentiles, obviously, You've come back down to here, and Paul's saying, well, I'm going to, to Jerusalem. That, that's where my heart is. That's what I'm set on. And you know it it's comes, right? Verse 4, we see, it says, And they told Paul through the Spirit not to go to Jerusalem. Have you ever had that experience before? You're sharing your heart, just a light conversation, enjoying fellowship with others, and then, uh, man, the Lord's really laid it on my heart. He's called me to do this. And they're like, well, why would you do that? Why, why would you go and, and why would you be that radical for the Lord? Or, or, or why, why would you go and risk so much? They say, Paul, why would you go? Don't go up to Jerusalem. That can be tough, right? There's that, that intimacy of fellowship, right? The bond of, of, of being saved, experiencing a death to ourself, and now being saved by the grace of God, it creates a fellowship like no other fellowship that there is, we can have that intimate relationship with others, and yet there's still those times where it hurts as we're being open and, and vulnerable. And the response to not move forward, and sometimes that happens with us. Well, yeah, I know that you're going to Bible study, or I know that you're, you've been in the Word of God, but, you know, if you share with your boss at work, you're going to risk it. That's a risky move. What about if, if they don't give you the promotion? Or what about if you get fired? Don't serve in that ministry at church. You don't have time with all the activities. It's going to cost you. Don't move forward. 
or don't give in that way, you won't be able to afford the newest phone or the lifestyle that you currently have. There's all these persuasion by well-meaning, maybe even perhaps believers in the church, that call us not to follow all that the Word has called us and asked us to do. And Paul was not moved by their response. It didn't dissuade him, although he faced it. Notice, um, sometimes I need to learn from this, Paul didn't verbally respond to that. It's like he heard it, okay, he recognized it, but he, he just let it go, right? Sometimes that's biblical, we just let it go. We don't have to, we don't have to address or prove ourselves um, right in everything, every single uh, thing that's said to us. He overlooked it and he went on his way, but he wasn't discouraged. He wasn't discouraged, he wasn't dissuaded. He didn't let it bring him to ruin. And notice, too, it didn't ruin their relationship. See, there's others sometimes in the family of God in the church. They share their hearts and they're well-meaning. They say these things. And it's not what God has asked us to do, but it doesn't break their relationship. That's love, right? It can cover that. And we need to know that. And what an example for each of us. And so from there, we looked at Paul. He, okay, he doesn't address it, but they go on. They go to the beach there and they pray together. And he leaves Tyre now. And then in verses 7 through 13, we see Paul now comes to the second round of dissuasion that he faces. If we look in verse 7, his, his travel itinerary now he, from Tyre, he goes to um, Polydamus, and then he finally arrives in Caesarea. And so Caesarea would just be going down the coast along the Mediterranean Sea. He's closer to Jerusalem, still along the sea, almost to Jerusalem. That would be his next place as we pick it up next week, where he's going to arrive. And there, as he arrives in Caesarea, how refreshing would it be to go and to come back to somebody that you've already have known, a familiar face in, in your life. We, we're told there that he comes to the house of Philip the evangelist. And if you forget, if, if, if we've been tracking through the book of Acts who Philip was. Remember that it was in Acts chapter 6 that there is the um, elders that they they were uh, in the church in Jerusalem. Remember that there were some who were um, upset at the elders because they felt like um, their widows weren't being taken care of. And the Lord um, said to appoint deacons, men who were filled with the Holy Spirit to serve tables so that the elders could give themselves to the teaching of God's word and, and to prayer. And so one of those deacons who, who came up to be in Acts chapter 6 was Philip. So we see that Philip was a servant. We also know because of what Acts chapter 6 tells us, that he was a man who was filled with the Holy Spirit. And then again in chapter 8, we saw that it was Philip who preached Christ to multitudes in Samaria. And as Philip where he got his name, the evangelist, right? Telling the news, the good news of Jesus Christ in Samaria. Many were saved. God had used him. So not only, we see that he was a servant. We see that um, he was a man filled with the Holy Spirit and one who shared the gospel of Jesus Christ and God used to bring many to him. And now again, here in Acts chapter 21, we see another quality of Philip. He was hospitable. He was hospitable. You know, it wasn't at, like today, um, if you're traveling to a city, 
all the hotels are booked up or just maybe hotels aren't your thing. You'd rather stay in a homey fill where you can just go online and find an Airbnb or a, a Verbo, is that what they're called, VRBO, or um, I don't even know what other, what other apps or websites that we can use and um, where the people leave their house and you pay a fee and you come and stay in their house and, and it's your home for that time. Well, when people would invite you in, again, not hotels weren't the thing then, you would go and, and you would just stay at houses. People would open up their homes and you'd spend as much time as you wanted there. It's not a perfect plan itinerary. And Philip said, hey, Paul, you're traveling through. Those men who are with you, come. Just stay with us. Be refreshed. Just, you're traveling. Just that fellowship, that love that, that Philip had to open up his home. And we see not only he, as Philip opens up his home, did you notice that it gives the description of his family? We were told that Philip had four daughters, right? Four daughters. And, and the Holy Spirit seemed that it was important that we would um, note here that his daughters were prophetess. So they had the gift of um, foretelling or foretelling God's word. And then also that they were virgins. So interesting Philip, a man who served the Lord, a man who was filled with the Spirit, a man who um, went and shared the gospel of Jesus Christ, a man who opened up his home, who was not too busy for ministry and wasn't afraid of being too involved that his, his family, his kids, would think that it was too much. See, he invited his kids in just to serve and be part of all that he was doing. Isn't that a cool example for us? And in, in a city of Caesarea where there's much um, sexual immorality, see, this had an effect even on the kids. That, that they, were, they, they were virgins. They were walking with the Lord, following the, the law of God. But not only that, that word can also be used to describe their relationship with the Lord, like a sense of piety to the Lord. They, they, were, they were His. There was something special with them. And so this heart of Philip. And he said there that they, um, he, as Philip led by example, Paul and his friends, that they stayed many days in leading. Uh, so we see that he was leading his family well. That, that heart, Philip, whatever is mine, Lord, whatever you've given me is yours to be used. <laughs> you know, that, that's testing of our, of, our, of our flesh, right? When someone comes over and you're like, ah, yeah, I would love to have you over. And then it feels like they stay many days and it's been three or four hours, right? But being willing just to welcome and, and to love a person in that way. And as Paul knows, I don't, we don't, we're not told how many days in it's been, but they're having conversation. Again, they're sharing. And then we see another prophet comes to Philip's house. The multitude just keeps getting bigger. The crowds just keep coming. Maybe it will be like tomorrow night as East Brucen will be taken over by CCSP as we just hang out and fellowship. But, but we see here that Agabus, Agabus comes and he joins the crowd at Philip's house. Remember back in Acts chapter 11. In Acts chapter 11, it was Agabus who prophesied and said that there would be a famine that was about to come. That there was a famine that was going to come and it came to pass, and so as he joins um, Paul and the crew at Philip's house, we see that he gives another prophecy. He foretells what would happen in the future. The, the Holy Spirit had given this revelation to Agabus. We see that he takes um, 
Paul's belt that he had. And what does he do? He, he binds his hands. And he says, the person whose belt this is, that they too will be bound. Of course, speaking about Paul as he would go to Jerusalem. So again, the Holy Spirit through Agabus is revealing to Paul what would happen ahead of him. Paul, as you go to Jerusalem, you will be bound. He will be chained. No doubt they knew that that meant imprisonment, that Paul would no longer be free. And we see Paul's response. Well, first of all, we see the response of his friends in verses 12 and 13. His friends, they plead with him not to go. But yet Paul continually will not be dissuaded by even these believers who say, Paul, don't go. And when Paul says, what do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? That those, that, you know, if you look in what those words actually mean, it, it says that, that they were, um, he says, why would you break my heart? Why would you be breaking my emotions like this? You know, there was weeping. They loved Paul genuinely. They, they, they loved him. Paul, don't go. And Paul, why would you go? Please, just stay. Why would you do that, Paul? We love you. We don't want to see you bound in that. Here is an even more intense attempt to move Paul from obeying the Lord's call to go. And you know, we can expect the same thing as we step out in obedience to the Lord, as we say, okay, Lord, you've laid this on my heart, whatever it may be, if it's a ministry, if it's whatever God is, you know, however the Lord's convicting you or, or working in your heart, as we continue to go, we can expect dissuasion, don't go, but then that continued to be more intense, more intense, even by those who we are close with. Don't be, don't be surprised by that. Don't be surprised. But here's the question. Okay, well, and um, I was riding down to church with Kai this morning. We were, having, he was, we were talking about it, and he asked me the same exact question. So I, and I was thinking it as I was preparing. You're like, well, isn't it foolish of Paul to go? If the Holy Spirit is, is through the believers um, entire, when, when the Lord had revealed, um, just you know, impressed upon their heart there that Paul would be bound, and that that would happen to him as he would go. And then if God would send a prophet, Agabus, to say the same thing, to give that prophecy of don't go because you will be bound, well, Paul, why do you go? Isn't the Lord saying don't go? Well, notice in verse 4, they said that it is through the Spirit not to go. And then in verse 11, we read again, read it closely, it says that the Holy Spirit through Agabus just simply revealed what would happen. The word isn't saying in, in terms of commanding Paul not to go, but simply putting forth, this is what's in front of you. That's the difference. This is what's in front of you. See, they had these friends, both in Tyre and Caesarea. They had true love and, and concern for Paul, but it's the opposite of God's will. And we have to be careful of this same thing. We have to be careful of being those friends who we, we genuinely love those who um, are in the body of Christ with us, those who are close to us, parents, our kids, whoever it may be. And God's, we're, we're, the Lord's calling me to this. And then we say, well, 
don't you think we should take a step back? Let's, let's reevaluate this. Let's think this through a little bit. And yes, there's, the Bible says that there's uh, wisdom in the multitude of counselors. But when push comes to shove, we, wanna, we want the person to follow the Lord's will not what we think is best. And so there's this fine line of, of walking and being sensitive to that, sharing our concern in love, but still ultimately trusting the Lord as he leads others through his spirit. But this then brings us to the last point, the knockout punch that settles this all. Paul, two times, facing dissuasion not to go. We see it intensifies so look with me at Paul's response in verse 13, the second half and 14. He says, What do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. So when he would not be persuaded, we ceased saying, The will of the Lord be done. So this, then, we have to ask ourselves two questions that I mentioned before. What was, settled in, what was settled in Paul's heart that prevented him from being dis- deterred? See, Paul didn't come to this um, Tyre and Caesarea to these times um, where he, uh, that he faces dissuasion and at that moment make that decision. Something was settled long before in Paul's heart that it wasn't even a decision for him. And that's key. And what was it? What was settled in his heart that prevented him from being deterred. See, Paul, I believe, looked to the one who went before him and also would not be dissuaded, and that's Jesus. Put a mark here, turn to the left, and go to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. And the context here, uh, Mark, excuse me, Mark is writing, but Jesus is with his disciples And this is the third time that Jesus would reveal to his disciples, those who are following him, that he would be put to death as he would go to Jerusalem. This is the third time that he reveals this. They didn't understand. They didn't get it. But Jesus just continued to share with them, pour into them. Now, let's read together um, verse 30, starting with verse 32. And so... God's word says, Now they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was going before them, and they were amazed. And as they followed, they were afraid. Then he, Jesus, took the twelve aside again and began to tell them the things that would happen to him. Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priest and to the scribes, And they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and scourge him and spit on him and kill him. And the third day he will rise again. Do you notice there the similarities between Jesus as he's going to Jerusalem and this journey that we've seen Paul on? See, Christ was taking his disciples. They were his closest friends that were with him, that were right around him. And as they're going up, he's just sharing with them. And he tells them a few specific things. He says that he would be betrayed. We saw that he would be condemned. That he would be delivered to the hand of the Gentiles and and be killed. We know, crucified, be put to death. See, the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ is what was settled in Paul's heart. That's what he knew. And that's how Paul 
was not deterred. And this truth must be settled in our hearts as well. The death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, nothing else. It must be a reality for us. Look at these similarities between Paul and Christ. See, Christ was, we see, constrained, or, or that simply means bound, he, he, to go and obey his Father. We've seen this as you read through the Gospels. I must do um, the will of my Father. I can say nothing. I can do nothing unless my Father in heaven does it or says it. Excuse me. Right? But nothing would deter Jesus. Even as he was sharing with his, uh, Jesus was sharing with those closest to him. Remember, um, Jesus asked his disciples, who do men say that I am? And they say, some John the Baptist, some say um, Elijah, right? And, but Jesus turns to them and they say, and he says, who do you say that I am? And Peter, uh, by the Holy Spirit, revealed that you are Christ. You're the Messiah. You are the Son of God. And then Jesus went on and he said, yes, I am. And, and, and he said that he would go to Jerusalem and be put to death. And what is Peter's response? No. No, that, that can't happen. That can't happen, Jesus. And, and um, Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. For you mind not the things of the Lord, but the things of the flesh. See, even those closest to Jesus didn't quite understand. They didn't get it. And they, deter, they tried to deter him, to dissuade him. Paul faced that same dissuasion by those close to him. Notice, too, both Paul and Jesus, they went willingly to Jerusalem. Nobody forced Jesus to. He went of his own free will. He chose to go, knowing what was ahead of him. Paul went to Jerusalem, knowing what was ahead of him. In Acts 21, 14, we saw that the friends, as they we, we read with Paul, they said the will of the Lord be done. It was settled. Paul knew that it was God's will for him to go, and he said this be done, the, word of, the will of the Lord be done. Remember that it was Jesus as he, after the Passover meal, they went out and he was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. In Matthew 26, 42, there Jesus said, nevertheless, Father, remember he was saying, if this cup, if there's any other way which man can be saved, Lord, please let this cup pass from me. But he said, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. We see that both Paul, as Agabus said, that he would be delivered to the Gentiles, and he was. And Jesus was delivered to the Gentiles. The Jews couldn't put him to death, so they took him to the Romans, right? And it was the Romans who ultimately uh, crucified him. And we see that both were put to death, Jesus and Paul, eventually. They were killed for their faith. But did you catch it? There's one difference between Paul and Jesus. There was one difference as we read these accounts. Look again in verse 34 at the end. Jesus, after saying that he would be killed, notice in Mark 10, 34, and the third day he will rise again. The resurrection the resurrection. See, this is one substantial difference. And the resurrection makes all the difference. Paul knew because Christ had not only died for him, but he rose the third day that he conquered death. And so Paul was able to say now, what is it for me to die? If I were to go to Jerusalem and if I were, yes, I'm going to be put to death. So what? If that happens, 
There is one who has gone before me willingly because he loved me and he died for me. But see, death didn't hold him down. He rose again. And Paul wrote of this in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 56 through 58. There we read, The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the word of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. See, Paul was able to say that. That was a reality for him. You can be immovable. You can be steadfast in what the Lord has asked you to do in the labor that he has put forth in front of you because it's not vain. It's not empty. And we are, what, what makes us immovable, what makes us not be able to be moved or deterred is that Jesus has taken away the sting of death. The worst that this world can do to us is but a shadow. I heard one pastor say, I used an analogy this way. He said that um, there, was a, there was a minister who um, had, a, I, I forget how many kids, but um, his wife had just died. The, the, the family, they were together, and, and they were driving um, to the cemetery um, with the, the father now and, and his kids with them. And they were going to, to bury uh, their mother and their, their wife. And, and the kids started asking their father a question. Well, like, kind of about death. And, 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 and how is this a reality, what Jesus has done? And the father, as they're going down the road, they pass a semi-truck. And he said, you know, son, would you rather be hit by the semi-truck or the shadow of the semi-truck? The shadow, right? The shadow. Death has lost its sting. And for us, us now, because of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it's but a shadow. We pass through for a time. Your life is hid in Christ. And, and when you or I die, we know that we will be with Him. See, and this was such so settled in Paul's heart that he was able to say, go back over to Acts and look again what Paul has already said in verse, excuse me, in chapter 20. Chapter 20 was when he was still in Miletus exhorting the um, elders of Ephesus. Paul knowing that he was going to Jerusalem, but before all this was prophesied, excuse me, prophesied, foretold um, by his friends that he would be bound. Look in verse 24. We see in chapter 20, verse 24 of Acts, Paul said, but none of these things move me. Nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish the race with joy and the ministry which I received from the Lord to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. A few things. So Paul knew the death and the resurrection of Jesus. That was settled in his heart. See, now we start to see how this played out. What did this knowledge, how did this impact his life? And we must ask ourselves the same thing. Okay, I know and I believe that Jesus died on the cross. I know that he rose again the third day. But what difference does this make? Paul, we see, he said, first of all, that um, he doesn't count my life dear to myself. What he's saying there is I don't continually possess. That's when he's saying count. I don't continually and hold on to and possess my life as one that is dear to myself. And if you look up that word dear, right, 
if I say um, to Olivia, hey dear, like, let's go out for dinner. That's a, that's a, that's a, a, a term of um, endearment, of sweetness, right? Hey, we might say like, she gets the idea that she's precious, special to me, valuable to me, right? That's that same idea. Paul is saying that I don't count, I don't possess my life that is something that is precious to myself. But there's a difference. Paul isn't saying, Paul isn't living flippantly, as in like, you know, I I don't see myself as, I, I see myself as worthless. That's not what he's saying at all. That's not what he's saying. See, in the Old Testament, um, this is, word is used to describe the value, that, that, that same word, dear or precious. We, we see it's described to, um, as it describes the valuable stones often that were put in the crowns of, of the kings or, or those who were in power. Those stones, there is much value. And it describes even the, sto- the type of stones or the value of the stones, the riches, when the queen of Sheba, remember that she came up to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and it says that she brought many spices and much um, gold with her and valuable stones, precious stones. That's that picture that we see. And when Paul is saying that his own life, he doesn't hold on to his life in a, his, in a way um, that was of utmost value to him, it simply means that compared to some, there was something else in Paul's life that was of that much more extraordinary value that it didn't compare to his own life. That's really, remember, it makes me think of, remember when Jesus said that unless um, you hate your father and your mother, your, your family, you, you can't come after me. Now, he's not saying that we're to hate our family, but he's saying that in comparison to, to who I am, to your love for the Lord, it has to seem as hate. It can't compare. We might say, some of us, uh, and I'm not saying that we complain about our jobs or that we hate our jobs, but right, in comparison of do I, I, I yes, I, I'm thankful for a job and I go to work, but man, being able to spend time with our family or with our friends or, or just doing so, like the, something that we enjoy, our job we hate compared to that, right? That's kind of that idea. You get the picture. But something else had grasped Paul's heart that was of utmost and uncomparable value to him. And it was Jesus Christ. See, Jesus had the supremacy in, in the highest, the most supreme place in, in Paul's heart. Nothing could compare to it. Even his own life. Well, what is it to me if I die? I, I'm not holding on to my life. I, yes, I, I want to take care of my body. He, Paul would say to Timothy that um, bodily exercise um, profits little, so it does profit some, right? We're not to just eat bonbons and, and do nothing and sleep all day. We, you know, we should take care of our bodies, these temples. But man, compared to you, Lord, what is it? Everything else fades. That's that idea. His love for Christ was uncomparable. And see, as a result of, of that value that Jesus had in his heart, Paul was brought to that place where I must tell others of the grace of God. I must. And I, there's, I can't do anything else. Others must know of this love of Christ. I won't be moved from that. And if it meant that it cost him his own life, he wouldn't be moved. 
See, and when this is settled in your heart, you too become immovable. I become immovable. Even death can't deter us. So then we have to ask ourselves, how does this become a reality? See, because if you're like me, I can agree. I can sit here and I can say, okay, Paul, I agree. I know that Jesus, I know that it's the most healthy and it's the most whole place for you have to have the supremacy, the, the most value of my heart. I know that that is. But I have a difficulty taking it from the knowledge to moving it to my heart and living it out in my life. And Lord, help me with that. But, but what, what does that look like? And, and, and what, what are some um, just practical steps? What can we do to put ourselves where the Lord can move our, our hearts in that way? Keep a marker here in Acts chapter 20. We're going to come back to it. Go back again to Mark. Turn to the left. Go to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14. Here we see in Mark chapter 14, Jesus, again, at, at a home, and he's spending time with his friends, and we're going to look at his account here with um, Mary. You remember Jesus? He, he hung out with these two sisters a lot. Mary and Martha, and they had a brother. Remember his name? Lazarus. Yeah. Remember, uh, we saw that one time Jesus, as he, was, he came to the house of Mary and Martha, and there, um, you know, we see the Mary and Martha, the two sisters compared. We're running around like crazy getting all the tables set up for the pizza tomorrow, getting the grass cut because it wasn't cut ahead of time. That's a joke, <laughs> right? Frantically worried about having everything perfect, and then the other just sitting at the feet of Jesus, spending time with him. And then remember we see Mary and Martha a little bit later when, when Jesus, excuse me, when their brother had died, their brother became sick, Lazarus, and he died. And they send, they, they send a messenger to go get Jesus, man, his friend, Lazarus. Our brother has died. And they were torn because of this. It, it hurt them. And Jesus even was hurt, right? He wept knowing that. And, 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 and he comes, and, and Jesus intentionally took his time, and he, and he brought Lazarus back to life, right? And we, we saw that account. But then again, we, we come here, Jesus... Um, and we see in verse, excuse me, chapter 14, starting with verse 3. And being in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at the table, a woman came having an alabaster flask, a very costly ointment of spikenard. Then she broke the flask. This is Mary, who we've been looking at, we've been talking about. She broke the flask and poured it out on his head. But there were some who were indignant among themselves and said, Why was this fragrant oil wasted? Verse 5, For it might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they criticized her sharply. But Jesus said, Let her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always. And whenever you wish, you may do them good. But me, you do not have always. She has done what she could. She has come beforehand to anoint my body for burial. Assuredly, I say to you that wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. 
So at Simon the leopard's ho- leopard, or the leper's house, um, Jesus, Jesus is there and Mary comes and she has this container, this flask, we're told, of, of, of spikenard. And it was of much value. You know, many of the commentators say that this was probably Mary's um, endowment, meaning, or excuse me, dowry. So when, when she would be married, she would give this as a gift because um, it was of much value. You know, there's different estimates, but um, some say that this would, could have been and probably was a year's worth of wages. Think about that. Pre-tax, right? So don't cut it by a third or however much right, the government takes. A year's of your wage. Taking that, coming as Jesus is sitting there, you, you have this ointment that is that valuable, and you break open the flask, and you just pour it on Jesus. And there are others that are sitting there, we're told in another gospel that this is Judas, and, and, and he's just, are you kidding me? See, and just being honest, I don't know if I should say this, but I could relate to Judas because Judas is like, this isn't practical. This could be sold, and there could be so much other things done. But Mary, it's, Man, she could just pour it all out. You know, some even say if this was her dowry, what was to be given um, at a time of marriage, uh, Mary, probably not married. And even in that, she was bringing all of her hopes and all of her dreams, all of her future of even marriage, of having a family. And, and she gave it all to Jesus, not, not saying, Lord, um, I'm desperate and hopeless uh, to be married and I'm just giving up on it but because it was even of that, he was of that much more value to her, of that much more prominence in her heart. She came to that place. And see, for, for, for Mary, she simply saw Jesus as beautiful. And Jesus, for her, wasn't a means to an end, but he was the very end in which he was also the means. See, for Judas, and one pastor said it this way, Judas saw Jesus as a means to an end. He could use Jesus to get something from him, to get money, to get prominence, whatever it was in Judas's heart. But Mary, man, she just gave it all. She laid it all out because there wasn't anything in her heart beyond Jesus. He was the very end, Jesus himself. But then we must ask ourselves, how, do we, how does this become a reality for me? And this is hard because, like, I, again, just being honest, I wrestle with that because that's, I, I, I'm like a practical guy. And, and just to sit, sometimes I can be, I just, again, being honest, I can sit just spending, stop and just sitting and talking or spending time. I want to do stuff. I want to be practical. Let's get it done. But what, what brings Jesus to this place in our hearts? How do we do this? See, we need to understand what Jesus did on the cross for us, what Jesus did on the cross for you. As you begin to understand the reality of what Jesus did on the cross, he becomes the most beautiful thing in our hearts. And I know that we can say that, and, and some of you can even start to tune out right now because it's the Christian language. Yes, the cross, Jesus, understand the cross, yes. Right? But have we actually really done that? Do we really sit and think about this and let it examine our hearts? Do we sit and wrestle with this? 
See, Jesus, who was the perfect, sinless Son of God, He did all to please His Father, that it was Jesus who willingly, willingly went to the cross. He wasn't bound by the Romans, but He went into Jerusalem of His own free will. It's Jesus who in the Garden of Gethsemane, when they came to arrest Him, I, He said, I could call down legions of angels. And I can take care of this, Peter. I don't need you. Because He was willingly giving of Himself. For what? To die not for His own self, but for you and I. See, it was my sin, it was your sin that was put upon Him on the cross. Every sin, every lie, every prideful thought, every word that I say that cuts down another, every possession that we covet, every sexual sin, every murder, every sin that we've ever committed, that you committed, that's why Jesus died on the cross, for our sin. See, and think about this. Jesus did not need to die on the cross for himself. There is no self-gain for Jesus in dying on the cross. And that's hard to wrestle with. And that rubs, just be honest, that rubs you the wrong way, doesn't it? What do you mean? There's no self-gain? Jesus went to the cross, and what did he gain? What, what could now be his because of the cross? Yes, you and I. See, but that rubs me the wrong way because I want to think, and in my heart, my prideful little heart wants to say, well, Jesus got me on the cross, and didn't he get something great? He got this, he got this man, just this saint that will do so good for him and that he really needed. See, and I think that Jesus needed me, and that's not the case. See, the cross displays the righteousness and the glory of our just God. There was no self-gain. Then why did he do it? He did it out of grace and his love for you. It's different. Jesus didn't die because he saw you as a means to an end, but simply because in his grace, he loved you. And in, in his love, he desired you. And it, you see, you were of such great value, value to him. You weren't usable to him. He didn't need you. He was self-sufficient in and of himself. Yet he does choose to use you. That's the amazing thing. The love of God displayed in Christ for you. And again, this doesn't sit well because it goes against our pride and our self-righteousness and it exemplifies the grace of God. The, this isn't new though. You know that the Lord had already said this in the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 7 through 8, there we see that the Lord says, the Lord did not set his love on you, speaking of Israel, nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people. For you were the least of all peoples, but because the Lord loves you and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage and from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. See again, Israel wasn't more in number. That's not why he chose them. They didn't have the most riches. They didn't have the most influence in the world. But God saved them and delivered them because he loved them. And God has saved and delivered you because he loves you. And that's what settles it in our hearts. 
See, that's what moves it from the head to my heart to living this out. See, because I realized that, that, that God, well, he wasn't using me. You know, you think about this. You know that person, maybe a, um, a friend or at work, and they don't really talk to you ever, but then all of a sudden there's a project that they need help with. And then you hear from them, right? Hey, do you want to, um, can you introduce me to your boss? Right? Maybe they, they, they know that your boss has some influence or they think it's going to help their career. Or do you think you could teach me how to do this? They don't really care. They're not really interested in you, but they just see the end game and they want to use you to get that, right? See, that's not God's heart. He loves you. And then for us, because I realized that Christ had no self-interest in going to the cross, but he would do that, the, the reality of my sin, the reality of what it cost Jesus, the reality of what he did on the cross, that love displayed. See, now we respond to the love and to the grace of God. I don't have to obey to prove myself to God, but I want to obey because of all that he has done for me. And that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you see how this is the gospel? The beauty of Jesus, Christ moves our heart. Look again in chapter 20 of Acts. And I intentionally didn't read this verse because I knew that we were going to come back here. But read, let's go down in chapter 20, verses 20, starting with verse 22. Let's read through this again. Now see, again, exhorting, this is before he would even start his journey to Tyre and Caesarea, where he would face dissuasion. Paul said, and see, now I go bound in the spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself that, so that I may finish the race with joy. In the ministry which I have received from the Lord Jesus, I testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Why, would, why must Paul go to Jerusalem? We read it there at the end of verse 24. He says that I must testify of the grace of God. See, it was the grace of God that had changed Paul, that had saved Paul. It was the grace of God, the, the cross, that was settled in Paul's heart and in his life. It was the grace of God, the love of God, that had constrained Paul to go. And it was this grace that he said, I must respond to this. And I must tell others of the love and of this grace so that they can know this too, so that they can experience and know the resurrection and the salvation that is found in Jesus Christ. See, the Lord is calling each of us, I believe, to be a, to minister. Maybe not formally in terms of a missionary. Maybe the Lord is. Maybe not in terms of um, pastoral ministry. But maybe it's kids ministry. Maybe it, it's, it's witnessing to your neighbor uh, next to you on your street. Maybe it's inviting someone over for dinner just to love them and to share the love of Jesus with them. Maybe it's to testify of your boss or to, to your boss. 
I don't know, whatever it is, wherever the Lord is calling you, but as we experience the grace of God, we can't hold it back. See, and, and, if, and if our hearts isn't in that place yet, if, if Jesus and the gospel of Jesus Christ has, doesn't have that supreme value, we need to go back up to what we were saying before and sit with the cross. And just, you know, I, I know for me, I, I, I drift. I drift. And I have to find myself um, just, you know, in the quietness of a morning or at night, just preaching the gospel to myself. And I need that to be that reality in my heart and not my head. Go back there. Just sit with it. Be honest with the Lord. And the Lord will do that. He'll meet you. But you see, as, as the Lord calls us to minister to a world that is dying and lost around us, like Paul, it's going to cost us something. We know that Paul would die, you know, at least in the, right now. Not many of us are going to die this week for, for um, ministering. Maybe one day. But in a sense, we are going to die. Not lose our physical life, but it's going to cost you something. It's going to cost you comfort. It's going to cost you time. It's going to cost you maybe some money. It's going to cost you maybe your favorite hobby or, you know, maybe a workout or a TV show. You have to die to self. But how can I not die? seeing what Jesus has already done for you and I. And I just want to encourage us. Others may, may try to dissuade us, maybe our, our own hearts even, you know, speaks to us. Are you really sure that God's asking you to do that? Are you really sure that you should step out? Are you really sure that you should share with that person? Don't be dissuaded. Don't be dissuaded. See, I love that the Bible just lays it out for us, that you and I can now be ones who will not be moved. I will not be moved. As Jesus Christ has the, the supreme value and place in our hearts. And what a, what a healthy place that is as well. And so, Father, we thank you this morning um, just for this reality God, I thank you that, um, Lord, you desire to use us, Lord. And I thank you, Lord, for um, just the call that you've placed, Lord, for even those who are already serving, God. And I, I, I pray, Lord, that you would encourage them, Lord, this morning. Lord, maybe they have um, gotten weary or um, discouraged in the ministry, Lord, in, in witnessing or serving in the way that you have. Ask them to, Lord. I, I, I just pray that this would just be um, a renewal of that call and why they do it, Lord. And I pray, Lord, if there's anyone um, that you're just even encouraging or asking to step out, Lord, that you would do that this morning, Lord, that we would apply this to our hearts and our lives. Lord, and, but I pray for, Lord, many of others of us, Lord, including myself, um, Lord, we're all these other idols and, Lord, all these other things that we place in our heart or that um, want to take over, Lord, that we want to put so much value in, Lord, would you just let those things die? Lord, would you let us see? Lord, would you make the reality of the cross just renew it again in our hearts, Lord, this morning? And so we ask that you would move as we just even worship you, Lord, this morning. Teach us how to respond. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.